Welcome to Pro Corner. I'm your host, Austin Serhoff. Today's episode is part one of my conversation with Baltimore Orioles star Trey Mancini. Pretty pumped because this is my first non-swimmer that I have spoken to, and Trey's just a really good dude. He, It's a really exciting time for him right now because he is back on the field for the 2021 season for the Orioles after missing the entirety of the 2020 season um, while going through a now successful bout of chemotherapy for colon cancer. The main thing I want everyone to keep an eye out for in this episode as we talk about Trey's path from being a young kid going to spring training games in Winter Haven, Florida, where he grew up and falling in love with the game, to becoming a high school athlete, going to college in Notre Dame, going to the minors, um, is he displayed a trait, especially when he came to a crossroads in his career after coming up for the first time in the bigs in 2016, that I think crosses over to all elite athletes, and you might have heard pop up a couple times if you've listened to this podcast before. It's adaptability. He was a first baseman his whole life. He never played a lick of outfield. And after his initial stint, when he got called up to the Orioles' extended roster to get ready for the 2016 playoffs, he played pretty well, swung the bat well. The team wanted to keep him around, but they had already had an established first baseman in Chris Davis. So in 2017 spring training, they asked him to switch to outfield. And guess what? Trey figured it out with the help of um, a couple really good coaches, including my dad, which he mentions in the episode. Uh, Trey went from never playing outfield in his life to becoming a, at the very least, pretty good, um, although I haven't checked the stats, defensive outfielder. But more importantly, it keeps him on the team so the Orioles can take advantage of his, the, the bat that is so valuable to them. And... I've seen that in swimming in the Jack Conger episode. We talk extensively about how he was a world-class backstroker out of high school. And then after hitting some bumps in college, pivoted to butterfly and freestyle, just which is almost unheard of the way that he pulled it off. He became one of the best butterflyers in the world and eventually an Olympian in freestyle. But he adapted because he saw the big picture of, I'm, I want to be an Olympian. I want to be the best swimmers in the world, not... I need to be a backstroker. And it was the same thing for Trey. He got a taste of the big leagues. He saw that he belonged and he could do it. And the big picture wasn't, I'm a first baseman. It's, I'm a big league ball player and I'm here to stay and I want to help the Orioles win. And so he adapted, he stayed. And now four years later, he's um, one of the team leaders, one of the best players on the team. And now here we are with him playing first base for this new look Orioles that he's one of the leaders for. So it's interesting how those things are cyclical. The second thing is there was a really big moment in his hitting career that helped him become um, as valuable as he is to the Orioles in the batter's box. And I'm not gonna steal from the story that he told, but it's a moment in spring training when he was still in the minors, when he worked with um, an Orioles legend in Brady Anderson, and Brady gave him specific tips about his swing that he had to trust, you know, whenever we make those, those big changes that could have an impact on our trajectory as an athlete, there's always that first period afterward where it doesn't quite take yet. You actually take a step backwards and you just have to trust the process and trust that what you're doing is right. And Trey did, and it worked out. That's enough of me talking. Uh, Let's get to Trey Mancini. (laughs) 
I'm here with Trey Mancini, uh, Baltimore Orioles star. Uh, we're going to sit down, chat about how he got started with baseball, his time in the minors, and then now his time as a pro. So, Trey, how's it going, man? How are you doing today? Oh, doing well, Austin. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Uh, before we get started with any serious stuff and talk about what you're up to right now, I was talking to a coach of yours from back in the day, my dad, BJ, and he said to <laughs> ask you about the time that you got thrown out at a of a game in Bowie. You want to take us through that real quick? Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've gotten thrown out of two games in my life, and both of them were in the minors. Um, but yeah, back in 2015, I was playing in Bowie. Um, it was towards the end of the season. I was um, competing for the batting title for the league um, at that point. And, and, you know, I was hitting well, and I probably didn't need to get as mad as I did. But before the game, I received a plaque, um, like a citizenship award from the community there for being, you know, um, you know, a nice guy. I, I would always sign stuff <laughs> and um, things like that. So I had been given a, a plaque in like a, um, you know, a glass picture frame. So I had that in my locker. Um, and then I went out to the game, I uh, hit like a swinging bunt, beat it out by about two steps at first base. Um, umpire called me out. I was furious. Obviously, we don't have instant replay where you can challenge it in double A. Um, so between innings, I was warming up the infield. I was playing first base and, and I kept, I just kept mouthing off to the umpire throughout the whole you know, entirety of us warming up that next inning. And, and I could still, he, he told me, he said, you know, you say one more word, you're out of here. But I could still like feel him looking at me and I just wasn't happy about it. So I just kind of went off one more time at him. He threw me out. Um, I go in from the field, get all my stuff and head back to the locker room. I wasn't happy. And I kind of just like threw, like lightly tossed my stuff uh, when I got into the locker room and my helmet happened to hit the picture frame I had gotten before the game for being, you know, <laughs> and I felt awful about it. But um, that was kind of a moment where I, I said, you know, I need to calm down when I'm in the moment a little bit. And, uh, you know, it, it taught me a nice lesson there. I, I wonder if you still have that, that busted citizenship award yeah. frame, just to remind you. <laughs> but yeah, I do. I do still have the, um, you know, the, the certificate. Mm -hmm. A reminder that was not originally intended when it was given to you. Not at all. Yeah, it taught me a lesson I didn't expect. And we'll dig more into your time in the minors later. But uh, before we go backwards, can you take us through just what you're up to right now? Yeah, so right now I'm, I live in Nashville in the off season. Um, so I'm just working out and getting ready for next season. Um, and and um, I was diagnosed back in March with stage three colon cancer, actually. So I missed the entirety of the 2020 season. Um, did six months of chemotherapy. So it was, uh, it's been a rough year for everybody. And, and um, you know, the same goes for me. It was, it was really tough. And, um, but, you know, I'm two months out of, of chemo and feeling good and, and, you know, back to normal as far as uh, how I feel physically. So yeah, I'll be ready for this next year. Did you have to take it kind of slowly um, once you were out of the chemo and back to, you know, hitting the workouts and getting yourself back into shape. Was that, was that a process that you kind of had to be patient with? Cause I imagine someone like yourself, a high achieving athlete, you wanted to get right back after it afterward. Exactly. So right when chemo finished, um, you know, my life had been on hold throughout all of chemo. That was my only focus. Baseball really took a back seat. But once I finished with chemotherapy um, right away, I kind of felt this huge inkling to, to be ready for next baseball season already. But um, a lot of the doctors and, and um, you know, medical professionals told me you really need to take it slow. You might not feel totally 
like yourself for a few months, even after you're done with chemotherapy, it can kind of stay with you and, and um, things like that. So I, I tried to ease into it as much as I could, um, you know, without going too hard. But um, yeah, I'd say now I'm back working out really hard and, and everything like that. But it was a tough adjustment at first to try to ease into it. Because like you said, your natural reaction is to just start, you know, trying to really work out really hard right when you're done. Mm -hmm. And we're, I, myself and all Orioles fans, we're really glad that you're back in it and you have a clean bill of health. Um, what other stuff have you been up to lately? Because I saw that you had a podcast in the summer as well. Is that, is that an interest of yours that you're pursuing as well? Yeah, I think so. So my girlfriend and I, um, we, we've only released two episodes. It's on hold right now because our lives have just been absolutely crazy since chemotherapy ended. But we started a podcast, uh, Chief in Sports Broadcasting. So um, we just talked about colon cancer from each of our perspectives. You know, me being a patient, she was my caretaker, especially during COVID. Um, you know, we really didn't see anybody else. So she mm -hmm. was incredible throughout the entire thing. And, and um, you know, I, I, I would not have gotten through it without her. So we, we had talked about it and tried to raise a little awareness and kind of give people an insight into our day-to-day -day lives during that. Um, so yeah, we're, we're hoping to pick it back up here. Um, but, but right now we, we're, we're just trying to get our lives settled since we kind of just got our lives back. And then, um, you know, once that happens, I think we'll get back into it. Well, we're all waiting for it. Cause I enjoyed the first couple episodes. Yeah. Um, Let's take it back to when you were growing up, because I want to start at the beginning and then work our way through your career. So growing up in Winter Haven, Florida, um, when did you first, I mean, every kid plays baseball, every kid plays t-ball, but when did you first get exposed to baseball as, as a more of a concept that, there, that professional baseball exists? And what are your first memories of being like, whoa, that's really cool? Yeah, so I was lucky enough growing up um, that the Indians spring trained in my hometown from, they were there from 1992, which is the year I was born until 2008, mm -hmm. um, when I was a sophomore in high school. So, um, so yeah, I had them there my whole life. So it was so easy to get into baseball and, and you're up close and personal during spring training, you know, it's a much smaller stadium. There's not many people there. So you get a more intimate experience at the baseball game. So as a kid, it was so cool to be able to, you know, sit in a front row seat and see major league players play. So I fell in love with it, you know, from the time I was four or five years old and started going to those games. So um, Winter Haven really was a baseball center town because of that. And, and I definitely, definitely really loved it and, and ran with it from a young age. Okay. You were in an area with a team like the nineties in Indians, that was a completely dominant force and some of the most exciting personalities of the time. What players specifically were sticking out to you as a kid who were like, Whoa, I want to be like that guy one day. Yeah. There are a few. Uh, so when I was like six or seven, I remember Omar Vizquel actually came to one of my um, team's practices, which was absolutely incredible. It was like such a nice um, move on his part to take time out of his evening for after a spring training game and, and uh, come talk to my team. Um, he was one of the guys. And then in the early 2000s, I met a few of the, the guys on the team because my dad was actually one of the the doctors, um, mm. he's an OBGYN, so a lot of their wives, um, if they had a baby during spring training, they'd go to my dad, actually, and he delivered a couple of their, their babies, but um, Ben Broussard was a first baseman for them in the early 2000s, and I got to meet him and hang out with him a few times, and that was just so cool, and I remember him being such a nice guy, and it even furthered my love for baseball, meeting somebody 
um, like him. And, and it, it was just really cool and, and stuck with me from a young age. Does that experience still influence now you being a pro baseball player to this day, how you interact with uh, younger fans and people who love the game and want to keep getting better at it? Definitely. It left a huge impact on me because, uh, yeah, when I was seven years old, you know, this major leaguer is so nice to me, giving me advice, things like that. So I wanted to now, now that I'm on the same um, level that he was at when I met him, I wanted to return the favor and, and treat people the same way. Mm -hmm. So you, you're watching these Indians when you're a kid um, and they make a, a big impact on how much you love the game. When did you start really getting a feel for the game as, the, as an athlete more than, say, the T-ball and the, the youth leagues? When did you start to grow into it and realize that this is something that you had a, had a knack for? I'd say my sophomore year of high school is really when I, when I realized that I had a chance to maybe make baseball a career one day. Because, um, yeah, growing up, a lot of the time I, I was the best guy on my team and, and everything like that. But that can change as you grow up. The field gets bigger, especially from when you're 12 to 13, you start playing on the big major league size fields. That's a huge jump. And I remember I struggled at first with it and had lost some confidence, wasn't sure if I was going to be a good high school player or not. Um, you know, definitely went through, you know, some slumps, um, you know, whenever I switched to the bigger fields. But then mm -hmm kind of grew, grew into myself a little bit. And I played JV my freshman year, did great. But then playing varsity was like a huge step. And especially as a sophomore, I went to a high school that had a really good program. Um, and getting to be on varsity as a sophomore was an honor. And um, I just remember I, I had such a good year and, and some early success that year. And it gave me a lot of confidence. I think for the rest of my career, it was, it was really big for me getting off to such a good start my sophomore year because – um, I, I might have lacked a little confidence in some ways, and that really gave me some. So what happened that year that made the, the game start to click for you? Because, I mean, 16 years old, sophomore in high school, I can probably guess off the bat that there was a growth spurt involved. Um, but were there, any, were there any changes you made to how you approached the game or any guidance that you got from coaches that made you take another step forward as well? Uh, I, I just developed confidence for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Um, I... I like I said, I had some early success. I, I um, you know, had never faced pitching that guys were throwing in like the mid to upper 80s. And I started to, you know, grow into that and, and learn how to hit and, and be a good hitter. Um, but there wasn't anything that I'd say like necessarily clicked more than it was just kind of a slow process of getting experience and things like that. And then, um, you know, I was just kind of thrown into the fire that year and I, I ran with it. It was the first time that I really was, you know, thrown into the fire, like I said, and, and um, you know, I, I did well with it, and it just gave me a lot of confidence. And did the path to, what were you thinking about for your goals at the time? Was it always make it to the bigs, or were you more one step at a time, make varsity next year, maybe get a college scholarship, et cetera, et cetera? Exactly, yeah. So sophomore year, you're still young. Um, you know, colleges maybe start to look at you a little bit, and this was back 10 years ago. I mean, I know college is now recruiting kids in like the sixth or seventh grade. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> it's crazy. But back then, as a sophomore, you still were seen as young. Um, and then junior year is when colleges actually can start talking to you. I don't know how it is now, but um, but yeah, then it was just having success. I, I was playing with all, everybody was older than me that I was playing with and against. So, um, I, I almost felt like I was playing with house money in a way my sophomore year. Had a great year. And then going into junior year was really when, um, you know, I started to focus on college baseball. Um, mm -hmm. That was the next step. I, I, say, I would say that I always took it one step at a time.
throughout my whole career. But yeah, junior year is when I really started being interested in playing college baseball. I desperately wanted to play at a Florida school, especially Florida State. Um, Florida or Miami were like the three schools that I really wanted to go to, um, mm -hmm. you know, my junior year of high school. That's a that's a pretty stark difference from eventually ending up at Notre Dame. And yeah. I want to I want to get to the Notre Dame process in a second. But you said you mentioned that you you had a penchant for taking things one step at a time. And it sounds like you had a good head on your shoulders, even as a kid. Um, was that the result of mentors you had or advice you got from important people in your life? And what other advice did you get that helped you stay the course and be on the path towards where you got to eventually being recruited and going to Notre Dame? Yeah, I was lucky enough as a kid growing up. Uh, there are such great baseball people around the Winter Haven area. Um, I had uh, countless great coaches growing up um, that really helped develop me. And, and I'd also say toughen me up, too. Um, that really helped a lot. So by the time I was 12 years old, if I got reprimanded or even yelled at on the baseball field at all, it didn't phase me whatsoever because our coaches, um, I'd say, did toughen us up in that way. Um, and then when I was 12 years old, I started hitting with a man named Blake Doyle, um, who I still talk to all the time. I talk to him every week. Um, so he's been a, a huge part of my life. Um, and and uh, he's my friend also, as well as baseball coach. But he really, um, I think I took a huge step up whenever I started hitting with him when I was 12. Mm -hmm. I let's focus on that for one second, because I have a I've talked to a bunch of athletes like yourself that have reached this elite status and they always seem to find people at a young age that they carry with them as event mentors and then eventually friends even past when they were coaching them at such a young age. So someone like Blake Doyle, how does that relationship evolve from the time you were 12 and change over the years to where now he's a friend that you keep in touch with? Or is he someone you're talking to when you're in college? Is he just checking in? you know, quarterly? Or is he someone that's like, hey, I need help with my swing? Like what, how do those relationships that are kind of off in the ether change and evolve as you progress through your career? Yeah, it definitely changes. I'd say when you're younger, it's a lot more of a technical, what am I doing wrong in my swing, everything like that. And then as you progress along, it becomes much more of a mental game, especially at the major league level. So whenever I talk to him now, it's, it's always about my approach and what I'm thinking. Um, and and I'd say that's how it's evolved. And I have so, the hitting coaches I have for the Orioles are amazing. And, and Don Long is our hitting coach now. And he's so good with the mental side of it, too. Um, and, and he's helped me so much. So having both of them, um, you know, kind of at my disposal, I'm, I'm so lucky to have both of them. Yeah, it's a really cool thing when you have people that anytime you can just be like, hey, I need help with X. I'm, you know, help me sort this out. And, you know whether it's the hitting coach or whether it's Blake Doyle, who you've known for, you know, 15 years now, they generally know the best way to help. And I've seen that throughout sports with a lot of great athletes that have achieved success. Uh, let's move on to Notre Dame. So you wanted to go to the Florida schools and you didn't. So can you, yeah. So take us through that process. How did, were you recruited by them or was it just a, a process of elimination that you got to Notre Dame? Uh, so, yeah, as far as the Florida schools go, I had a lot of interest going into my junior year of high school. Um, and, and like I said, Florida State is really where I wanted to play the most. They showed me a lot of interest kind of between my sophomore and junior year. I went on an unofficial visit there. Um, and for whatever reason, I'm not exactly sure. They kind of stopped recruiting me, um, you know, almost ghosted me a little bit, I'd say, um, mm -hmm. as did several other programs. But 
I'm not exactly sure. Looking back, it's it's probably because I mean I was a really big kid in high school and and you know had some potential to really um, have a have some power in my game. But at the time, I was all about hitting for average, mm-hmm. and I think because of that, a lot of programs kind of shied away. Um, you know, I'm a first baseman, um, not particularly going to light up the radar gun when I'm running. Um, and, and I think <laughs> they saw that I wasn't putting up a lot of home run numbers in high school. And I'm guessing that's maybe what scared them away a little bit. So by the time that Notre Dame made contact with me, um, FIU Florida International was the only school I was talking to at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Florida State, UCF. Um, FAU, Miami. I, I never really talked to Florida at all during the process, but basically every Florida school except for FIU um, wasn't interested. Mm-hmm. And what was the process of committing? How long did you talk to Notre Dame to sort out that, yes, this is where I wanted to go before you committed, signed your NLI and uh, joined the Fighting Irish? Yeah, so they made contact with me going into my senior year of high school. So it was late in the process. And the only reason they knew about me was because one of the Doyle baseball instructors, um, somebody that Blake employed, um, he was college roommates with the current coach of Notre Dame at the time Mm. and told him about me. So they had never seen me play in a game, never heard of me before he, you know, gave the reference about me. Um, and then one of the assistant coaches actually flew down to Florida and just watched me hit in a batting cage. Never saw me playing a game, anything like that. So he came down, saw me hit in the cage. Um, you know, I hit a, hit some nice cage bombs, but, um, you know, it, it was still kind of risky of him to, you know, just look at me hitting in the cage one time and then decide that they, want, they were really interested in me. Um, and then a couple months after that, I went up and had my official visit um, in the fall. It was September 2009 when I went up on my official visit absolutely fell in love with the place, knew it was where I wanted to go. Um, and then about four days later, um, they offered me a scholarship and I committed right there on the spot. Beautiful. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on Notre Dame because I think we want to dedicate most of our time to your time as a professional athlete. But I do want to know one thing. What did you learn? And it could be a couple things, whether it's um, strength training or something about your technique or being a better teammate. What did you learn there that you think was the most valuable thing about your time on their baseball team? So it was definitely, you know, how to be a team player and to win. We saw every year at Notre Dame, we got better. Um, and, and we never really hit the point. By junior year, we were really good and um, had a lot of potential. We were probably the first team left out of the NCAA tournament. Um, mm. We lost in our conference championship game, so we didn't have an automatic bid. So that was a really tough pill to swallow with all the talent we had on that team. Um, and we, we didn't make it. So, um, you know, that was, that was tough on us. But at the same time, I think college baseball was where I realized that, um, you know, the mental side of the game is so important. In high school, I could kind of get by with, um, you know, not focusing too much on the mental side of the game and still having a lot of success. College, you know, you got to have a good head up, head on your shoulders to, to have some success there. And um, my coach there, Mick Aoki, really helped instill that in me throughout my career. I mean, sometimes I could get, I'd be, you know, mad, um, you know, if I wouldn't get a hit, if I was going through a mini slump, I didn't handle it well. And I learned how to start handling it better at Notre Dame. And then that, um, you know, happened a lot more in the minor leagues too. So that was an ever evolving process, but I say that started at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to dig too much into specifics if it was more of a general, you know, be stronger mentally, but did you start to develop any mental processes that your coach 
uh, introduced to you at Notre Dame or was it just more of a general being more aware of the mental side of the game that started there? Yeah, I'd say it was general, just kind of going through some slumps and, and seeing that I didn't handle it well. It was more just going through experiences and learning how to better deal with it and realize, you know, you have to focus on your success, your successes just as more as you focus on your failures. And at the time I was focusing a lot more on what I wasn't doing right than what I had been doing right. Um, yeah, yeah. I definitely learned that a lot there. That's, that is a natural tendency um, for people to be extremely self-critical, especially high achieving athletes. So what it, how, would you, how did you start counting your successes? Were you looking at, hey, I actually did this in, uh, on the stat sheet today? Were you looking at how you could be a good teammate? Like what were you starting to rack up as, hey, this is a success so I can take it easy on myself today and not be so tough on myself? Like how were you balancing that out? Yeah, I'd say it was just like kind of, I, I was too result oriented at first. And then um, I started to dictate success as, you know, I, I laid off a nasty pitch this at bat, even if I ended up getting out. Um, it was kind of taking things pitch to pitch and, and um, you know, controlling the things that I could control. Um, you know, you can't control if you hit a line drive right at the center fielder, um, mm -hmm. but you can see that as a success. You know, you, you hit the ball hard, you did everything you could do. And, and in baseball, there's a lot of things you can't control. So I started learning to just worry about the things that I could control. Mm -hmm. Something that my dad taught me at a young age that, you know, the very best baseball players succeed a third of the time. So you have to be very okay with, and I guess move the scale of what failure is, right? Like it's Absolutely. gotta, it's gotta be the most process oriented sport. Cause like you said, the perfect hit, a, a nice line drive, is going to get caught two thirds of the time, right? Exactly. exactly. So, yeah, that you just start kind of changing your mindset because, yeah, you're going to get out a huge majority of the time, um, and and it, it sucks, but you know that's just how it is in baseball. So your junior year, um, Notre Dame's been improving for three years now. You guys uh, just missed the NCAA tournament. It sounds like there's a lot of pull for you to come back. Um, what influenced this decision for you to turn pro? Yeah, it was a really hard decision for me. Um, so I got drafted in the eighth round, which is lower than I thought I'd get drafted. Um, and, and, you know, I feel like most kids that are drafted, um, you know, after the third round, every scout kind of tells them that they're going to get drafted between the third and the sixth round. So I really had that in my head during the draft. Um, and, and, so, you know, the sixth round goes by, my name isn't called yet. I'm just, you know, I'm heated. I'm not happy about it. Um, and then I finally get drafted in the eighth round. Um, so I had a really difficult decision on my hands. It was, do I go back for my senior year um, to a place I love, Notre Dame, or do I get my professional career started? Um, you know, it's something I've been working toward my entire life. So um, it was a really, really tough decision for me and ultimately, um, I obviously decided to go pro, but um, it was it was a really hard decision, and uh, I'd say a grueling five days. What was it about? What tipped the scales? What What was the final thing you remember? So it was really tough. I, I actually hate to say that this is what tipped the scales for me, um, but it but it kind of is. Um, and, and so my my college coach obviously really wanted me to come back for my senior year. Um, mm -hmm. For, for many reasons, but he really genuinely thought that I was drafted lower than I should have been. Um, and and I, I do get his thought process in saying, if you come back for your senior year, 
get drafted in a much higher position, you're going to be in a better position to make the majors one day, which he's right. You know, the higher you're drafted, the more chances you're given during mm -hmm. your minor year. So I was an eighth rounder. I could go back from my senior year, get drafted in the, you know, second, third round, maybe. Um, you're going to get a lot more opportunities, you know, if you struggle a bit in the minors. So um, while he was trying to kind of convince me to come back, um, he sent me a round by round breakdown of, um, you know, what percent of guys drafted in that certain round make the majors one day. So the first round was like 80% or something, and it kept getting lower and lower. And I remember the eighth round where I got drafted was 25% of the guys ever make it to the majors. And, you know, even for one day. Stiff so drop off. Me, yeah. So he, he sent me that. And, and um, at the time I felt like I was underdrafted too, but I also was like, you know, 25% of us that get drafted in the eighth round make it. I like my chances because I feel like, um, you know, I'm better than most of the other people that got drafted me, drafted than me in that round. So that's actually kind of what was the deciding factor in me going. Um, I just wanted to get my career started and, and that kind of pushed me over the edge a little bit. Mm -hmm. So many stories of people who took their draft position in the right way and used it maybe I mean, maybe not a chip on your shoulder and you can tell me if that if that's what it was, but more just like a positive motivator that, hey, uh, you guys missed me for a couple rounds. I'm going to show you. Yeah, a little bit. And I didn't want to hold out and try to get more money or anything like that. I was either going to, you know, sign within a few days, get my career started, not really miss any time in the in Aberdeen, which is the short season A team, or I was going to go back to college and go play summer ball in the Cape Cod League. So um, I didn't want to hold out for a month month and a half and then kind of missed missed that time I, I was ready to go and I you know I said you know I'll, I'll prove that I should be drafted higher and, and um, that was my thought process going into it let's talk about how it ended up being the Orioles that took you um, what was the what is that process like did you have um, conversations with scouts and you don't have to say which teams but were there conversations with scouts, with teams where they were like, hey, we're going to take you in X? Were the Orioles one of the teams that were always in the running in that process? I knew the Orioles were a team that would be interested because um, the scout that ended up drafting me, he actually took me out of area. He was the scout for the Northeast. And um, he, he kind of went out of area and, and stuck his neck out and took me in the eighth round. But he was the um, general manager of my summer baseball team in college after my freshman year up in the New England League. And, um, you know, after that, he became a scout for the Orioles. So I always knew they'd be a team that would be interested. Um, and I, I forget the other teams that I had the most contact with. I'd say the Orioles were number one. So I wasn't surprised whenever they called me. Um, but there are also a couple teams, and when I was in college, they came, and, and um, two of my other teammates in, in my year were drafted really high. So, you know, all 30 teams came to, to meet with them, and I'd say about half of them met with me. Um, and, and one of the scouts came in, and, and um, I don't think he really knew who I was or, or anything like that. Um, so he sat down and asked me how many innings I've thrown this year and, and was asking about, like, pitching stuff. I don't know who he thought I was, but I was like, <laughs> it's my freshman year of high school. Um, so he kind of asked me a couple more courtesy questions and then skedaddled out of there. Um, I think he kind of felt bad, but um, oh. yeah, he, he didn't really do his homework on who he was interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a rough one, man. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure that's another um, video clip you play in your head as you were progressing through the minors and trying to improve and get to the bigs. Um, I, I, I've had moments of like that in my own career where I was like, you really, you just did that? And it, always, it, it would always fuel me personally. Um, 
All right, so you get started in the minors. They send you to Aberdeen. What was what was your first impression of playing for a minor league team? What was that like for you? I really liked it a lot. So Aberdeen um, is is the first place that most of the people that get drafted by the Orioles play. So I had such a good experience there. Um, you know, the, the stadium was sold out just about every night. Um, it was an incredible atmosphere. Um, so much fun. And because in college, I played at Notre Dame. It's cold most of the time that you're there. So um, everybody in the stands were pretty much our parents or, or anybody significant other on the team. So there mm -hmm. were maybe like 20 to 30 people in the stands for our game in Notre Dame. At Aberdeen, we had between six and 8,000 a night. So it was really cool to play in front of a lot of people on a nightly basis. And I'd say pro ball, um, I, I noticed that even from the start, is a lot more individually oriented as far as, um, you know, the coaches aren't going to, you know, scream at you, yell at you. They're not going to overcoach you, things like that. If you want to get better, they're there um, to help you and everything like that. But it's also mm -hmm. up to you to succeed. So I really, really love that about um, pro baseball. And I learned that early on from the minors. Mm -hmm. So your draft, because you were drafting eight round, like you said, 25% of the people that get drafted in your rounds um, make it to the big leagues. So you weren't pegged right away as someone who was, you know, on the fast track to making the Orioles big league team. So what were a couple facets of your game? And we can dig into specifics, but how did you kind of start to reinvent your game to, to make yourself into someone that could play in the big leagues? And where, when did that process start? And was there a day where you're like, Hey, I really got to, I got to change X. Yeah. So I, I had um, in 2013, when I got drafted, I had a lot of success early on, um, you know, and, and had a great season. Um, I hit like close to 330, but the problem was I'm a first baseman. I only had three home runs in 70 games. So mm -hmm. um, I hit for average. That was always my MO. Um, even in college, I never hit it. I, I, probably hit like I think 27 home runs in my college career in three years so nothing mm -hmm. crazy um but always hit for good average and that, that was always my focus but as a first baseman um I, I knew one day I'd have to you know hit for some power um and, and that was you know the facet of my game that I really wanted to focus on more and then in spring training of 2015 um everything kind of changed for me in that regard I, I played 2014 um had a had a decent year hit 10 home runs I think in a full season so again um nothing crazy you know for a first baseman and then Brady Anderson saw me during a spring training game I got called up to the major league team um and got in that bat you know in the eighth or ninth inning of a spring training game mm -hmm. and saw me hit and he, he loved everything, you know, about my intention going up there. He loved my approach. But he also, my, my stance was a lot different. I was, you know, spread out, flexed, um, and kind of like looked like I was trying to fight the ball off um, hmm. in a way. And, and he saw that. And then the next day, um, Brian Graham, he was the, the head of the minor leagues at that time, said that Brady Anderson wanted to have a hitting lesson with me. And I was um, going to go over to the major league complex and hit with him that day. Um, and then everything kind of changed from there. He, he um, you know, changed my stance. I went from being spread out, flexed, kind of a low stance to standing tall, upright, and focusing a lot more on weight distribution and, and getting more extension in my swing. So that's really where my power started to develop was, was in the spring of 2015. Mm -hmm. What else do you remember from that meeting with Brady? Because uh, getting to meet him a couple times over the years, he's just such a – 
such a cool and fascinating dude. Um, what do you remember about that meeting, maybe besides the technical details that kind of stuck out to you about it? Well, I, I had known who Brady was, obviously, like when I was growing up. Um, he was such a good player and a player, you know, he played with your dad on, on a lot of those great teams in the 90s in Baltimore. So um, obviously it was, uh, I was, you know, ecstatic that he wanted to, um, you know, give me some advice and, and change some things. And he took an interest in me right then and there. So, um, you know, he explained things in a way, they're, they're very technical things, but he explains them in a way that are, that are easy to understand. He gives you really good cues to follow, um, you know, in your swing process. So that really helped me early on. So did that shift in your stance click right away? Because sometimes this stuff takes a little time to take. So what was your process adapting the stance, practicing it, and then eventually um, having it help your game? Right. So I actually struggled a lot the first month of that season. It took me a while to get used to it because I've been hitting one way my, you know, entire life for the most part. And then here I, I have a new stance, everything like that, new approach. It takes some time to, to show up in the games. And I remember at the end of April, I was in high A again after being there the year before. Um, and I was struggling. I was hitting like 220. Um, I, I didn't have a lot of success there the year before. And I was wondering if that was kind of my ceiling, like, am I going to be a high player and then, um, you know, be done. And mm. it was tough. And, and that went through my mind a lot. I, I, you know, I remember having a really rough time there for, for the, that first month. Um, and then all of a sudden things just clicked. Um, it was kind of a mental, um, I remember I hit an opposite field home run. Um, like it was my third home run of the year, a month in the season, but um, I had never hit a ball like that the opposite way before. And I, it kind of gave me, um, you know, a newfound faith almost in what I was doing. Not that I didn't believe in it, but I was having a really hard time adjusting to it. So um, after that, it gave me a lot of confidence. And then I finally, a month into the season, I finally walked for the first time all year too. And that, that helped, you know, having an on-base percentage that was higher than my batting average. You, uh, <laughs> your first I, walk I, of I the year. Walking, yeah. So I was kind of struggling <laughs> with that too. So all that kind of took a, a burden off my shoulders and I started having a lot more success. Um, ended up having a really, really good May, maybe the best month of baseball I, I played in pro ball. And then I got called up to double A about a month later. Um, but I do remember, um, you know, a month before I got called up to double A thinking that maybe I reached my ceiling. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a pretty stark change in the mental side of things going from thinking that you've, you've topped out to now, you know, the sky's the limit. The possibilities are endless. So was it I'm trying to think of how to ask this? Were there conversations being had about how you approach the plate as well? Like sabermetrics and deep analytics have such an impact on baseball. Like you said, you mentioned it was a big deal. You got your first walk of the year to help your on base percentage. Are you having conversations with coaches about the right way to, to approach an at bat at this stage in your career as well? Or is that just something you figured out on your own? Yeah, you're never going up there to walk. Um, but you know, going a month without one is really tough to do. And you're obviously going to be swinging at a lot of pitches out of the zone. Mm -hmm. So, so I was having a tough time kind of seeing the ball and relaxing up at the plate. I was, I was um, not dictating at bats at all. I was kind of letting the pitcher dictate the at bats. I was getting in bad counts and things like that. And, and um, I had another um, 
you know, another instructor. Um, he was our hitting coach in Aberdeen two years before, and then he was outfield coordinator at the time, Scott Beer. Mm-hmm. I remember I had a really long conversation with him one day. Um, and after that conversation with him is really when things started getting better for me. But, um, you know, he could see that I was struggling, feeling sorry for myself a little bit, things like that. And he kind of had a tough love conversation with me. Um, and, and that made a huge lasting impact. And it's still something I look back on now whenever I'm struggling. I always think about that conversation with Scott, um, you know, because we were really close. My whole draft class and him were we were really tight. He was such a good coach and cared about us a lot. So hearing, you know, that from him, I had never had a conversation with him before where he was kind of like, you know, you got to get it together here. Um, nobody's feeling sorry for you. You know, this is how it is. This is pro ball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're going to have to figure it out, basically. Um, that really, really resonated with me and, and helped me, I'd say. Briefly, and if people are listening who are really big baseball fans think this is a little rudimentary, I apologize. Um, can you can you briefly take us through what you mean by dictating an at-bat as opposed to letting the, the pitcher dictate it? Um, are there specific – I mean, is there, like, can you put it in a couple sentences, or is it more a big-picture strategy – um, that you practice? Um, it's, it's pretty big picture, but a couple things that you can do to help is a lot of pitchers like working at a really fast pace. So kind of like staying outside of the box, um, you know, asking for time until you're ready. Okay. Um, you know, that really like to work fast, that can kind of get them out of the rhythm a little bit. Um, and then a lot of pitchers obviously do their homework on you too. Mm-hmm. So you know what pitches you might go after, things like that. So it's up to you to adjust to know what that pitcher might throw you early in the count. He might try to bury a slider early in the count or, or throw a slider that looks like a strike and then it's going to go out of the zone. Um, you know, not chasing that really helps you. Um, and when I say dictating that bat, it's more getting in a hitter's count, laying off those first couple pitches that might be tempting um, you know, to swing at at first, but then laying off it and then getting yourself in a 1-0-2-0-3-1 count. Um, mm-hmm. That's how you do it. It's, it's being patient and not trying to always swing at the first pitch and, and get a hit every pitch. How do you balance things like, like you said, throwing the pitcher off by maybe messing around with the timeout or stepping out of, out of the box and taking your time? Are you working that into your routine or how do you balance a routine that gets you in a rhythm with making sure it's a rhythm that doesn't let a pitcher get into their own rhythm. <laughs> Cause it right, seems yeah. like a lot, it's a lot of chess back and forth. It is a chess match. And, and some guys really like taking their time in the box and things like that. I actually kind of like going at a quicker pace too. I just, I'll step out, take a deep breath real quick and get back in. So I don't really mind going at a fast pace, but a lot of other guys really like taking their time and, and um, you know, I think everybody who watched baseball growing up remembers Nomar Garcia Parr always adjusted his batting gloves um, 40 times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's just things like that. It kind of, it's part of your routine. You work things into your routine that might throw the pitcher off a little bit. And that's kind of one of them. So um, for me, I just kind of step out, take a deep breath and, and tap my bat on the plate once and then I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. When I was a little kid, like a lot of little kids who were not a fan of the Red Sox, I remember watching Nomar and not understanding the importance of a routine to, you know, priming yourself to succeed. And I was like, dude, your batting gloves are fine. Can you just (laughs) like, let's go, man. But now it's like, oh, it's part of his routine. It's part of his process. Okay. okay, So the hitting, the hitting took a step forward when you changed your stance, that started to click. You started dictating the count. Um, let's focus on defense now because you've talked, you've said a couple times that 
there is a disparity between your position first base where power is expected because um, it's less defense intensive. Um, you shifted from first base to the outfield, and that was a really big step in your career as well. So what went into that decision and why did you make it? Yeah, so that happened in spring training of 2017. I had just made my debut the September before, um, and I had just DH'd when I was there. I didn't play in the field um, for those couple weeks that I was there in, in 2016. So we're in spring training of 2017 now, um, and I had been having a lot of success in spring training. Um, so we were about two and a half, three weeks from the season starting, and, and the staff was, you know, starting to realize that I was going to make the team. They wanted me to be on the team. Um, you know, I really had to have a good good spring in order to do that or else I was going to go back to AAA to start the year. Um, but but they thought I was ready to be up there full time. Um, but in order to do that, I needed to play outfield because Chris Davis is our first baseman. So um, mm -hmm. and Kirby was our outfield um, instructor at the time and he took me out there. He and, he and Brady worked with, and BJ worked with me a lot too. Um, so I had a lot of good um, outfield minds around um, to help simplify some things. They, they did not make it complicated for me, which is really nice. Um, mm -hmm. But they told me, obviously, the basic things I needed to know and, and help me, you know, play a serviceable outfield out there. Because um, it, it's hard to learn on the fly, especially, you know, you're playing at the major league level. I'm, I'm playing in front of 40,000 people in a position that I've never played in my entire life. It's kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. My first game out there, I was as nervous as I've ever been in my whole life, um, you know, for a fly ball to come out, out to me, um, you know, you just don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, drop a fly ball in front of, you know, the entire stadium and people watching on TV. So um, it was a tough adjustment um, going from first to outfield because, like I said, I never played there before, but I had some really good help. You know, we take for granted that you guys are going to catch fly balls. <laughs> and you do. And you do. Yeah. But every but year, easy fly balls are dropped. A and B, when you first got started in the outfield, you go from taking grounders from, you know, 90 feet away and liners and, um, you know, when people get thrown out, obviously the first baseman catches it. I know this is sounding rudimentary, but it really is a big shift to catching a ball that is coming from 250 feet away, high in the air, and you have, you know, 50, 60 yards, however much it is that you got to cover. So what, what were some things that you were learning from Brady, my dad, and all the other coaches that helped you adapt to just how different the outfield is from playing an infield position like first. Yeah, it was so much different. So yeah, throwing was a huge thing. At first base, you never throw the ball more than 90 feet ever. So, um, you know, taking care of your arm and, and making good, accurate throws, um, you know, is huge in the outfield. And, and that was probably the biggest adjustment. And, and luckily my arm's been able to handle that. But after playing first base your whole life, that is, you know, a huge, a huge change. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's a lot of what the emphasis was for me. Um, I remember, yeah, BJ and Brady telling me like a, a few little cues to help me get a little carry on my throws and things like that. And, and with my throwing motion. Um, so that really helped a lot. And, and then kind of positioning in the outfield was huge too. Um, you know, getting to know, guys on the other team and what their hitting patterns were, you know, I'm not going to be standing in the same place at the beginning of the at bat as if the counts Oh two, I'll probably move a few steps to the opposite side um, because they're more likely to be late and kind of fighting the ball off. So they all taught me um, positioning and things like that too. Mm -hmm. Do you have, so relative to the count you're moving around, 
And yes. then there's conversations before the game, um, both in the minors and now in the majors, because um, I do want to stay in the minors after this part. There's conversations about where each guy's putting the ball every single time, right? Because people are tracking every at bat. So you're also positioning yourself based on this guy hits here, this guy hits there. And then also it's 0-2 in the count, it's 2-0 in the count. Um, there's people on base. It's So, yeah. yeah, it's all situational. And, again, you have so much space to choose from. Right. And, yeah. and also, like, whether we have a lefty or righting pitch, pitching, how hard the guy on the mound throws, all of that goes into where you play. And I, I had no idea it was so complicated in the outfield until I went out there. Because at first base, you're basically in the same place throughout the count every time. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you'll move sometimes based on righty or lefty. But for the most part, you're kind of in the same spot. So you, every single pitch, you got to be ready. You got to be looking in the dugout, looking at the outfield coach, um, mm -hmm. looking position at all so you got to have your head on a swivel out there for sure and and staying locked in too can be challenging at times you know four innings can go by you don't have a ball hit to you and then all of a sudden a sinking line drive can be hit in front of you and you have to debate whether to go up try to catch it or, or play it back and, and let it drop for a hit so you you cannot take a pitch off because when you least expect it a ball comes to you out there Mm -hmm. Do you have any memories of a time where you accidentally did take maybe you maybe you zoned out a little bit because guys were striking out a pitchers having a good game and then all of a sudden it gets clocked to you and you had to kind of snap out of it and get after it. Um, yeah, has, that, oh, has that ever happened? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's been a couple of times. Luckily, you know, I've never like totally zoned out and not seen a ball coming to me. But there were a couple of times where um, I was a little zoned out and, and just like they'd slice a ball to right field and it would luckily go into the stands foul, but I, I didn't see the ball at all. So there were a couple of times where I just throw my hands up in the air like this and, and not known, but, um, but no, that's never happened to me on a ball and play. Okay. Luckily. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. All right. That's the show. Thank you to Trey for stopping by part two. will come out next week where we talk about his MLB career up to this point after he broke through and established his spot on the Orioles and is now one of the veterans of a team that has just gone through a major organizational overhaul. Um, thank you for listening today. As always, rate, review, and subscribe, please, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not asking for five stars, but I am asking if you have an opinion, you have a lot of ways to leave it, so go ahead and click a rating. If you feel so compelled, write a review, whether it's to make the podcast look good or maybe just to give me some feedback or some constructive criticism. Uh, I'm an athlete myself, so I'm always looking to be coached, always looking for feedback, always looking to improve. So go ahead and do that. Or if you're feeling like you want to say something a little bit more personal or drawn out, you can always reach me um, via DM at ProCornerPodcast on Instagram or Austin at ProCornerPodcast.com if you want to reach me via email. See you next week.